Welcome to CUCC's Sermons for Everyone. No matter who you are or where you find yourself on life's journey, we're glad you've tuned in, and we hope you find meaning in this week's sermon. All right. Imagine with me. Imagine you just killed someone. I know it's Sunday morning. I know that's a really odd way to start a sermon, but imagine the worst just happened and you just killed someone. Like not on purpose, but your actions, they still resulted in someone's death. In most states and cases, we call this involuntary manslaughter. Maybe you were texting while driving and swerved into oncoming traffic. Maybe you improperly prescribed medicine, right? Or, or your occupation puts people at risk and your license had lapsed. Or maybe you failed to control a dog that has a history of biting. Maybe you required employees to work in a dangerous environment or extreme weather. Whatever the case is, you blurred a line, took a risk, were unaware of your surroundings, and something bad happened. You didn't mean to, but your actions led to a person's death. And then to make things worse, the person is a member of your community. Your families know each other and they blame you. They wholeheartedly blame you for the loss of their child, their spouse, their parent, and they want revenge. What happens next? Where on earth do you go? Where on earth do you, or who on earth do you turn to? I know it's a really odd and specific thing to talk about. There has to be more relevant conversations for us this morning. And yet, as we continue our journey with Joshua, and the Israelites. And as we find ourselves in the middle of several long chapters that list out which clan from which tribe gets which parcel of land, chapter 20 shows up. And it's oddly specific. It's unlike anything that came before it and anything that follows. So let's read this section together and then talk about it for a bit. From Joshua 20. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, say to the Israelites, set up cities of refuge for yourself. I spoke to you about these through Moses. Anyone who kills by striking down someone unintentionally or by mistake may flee there. These places will be a refuge for you from any member of the victim's family seeking revenge. The killer will flee to one of these cities, stand at the entrance of the city gates, and explain their situation to the elders of the city. The elders are to let the killer into the city and provide a place of refuge for the killer to live with them. If a member of the victim's family follows seeking revenge, they won't hand the killer over. This is because the killer struck down the neighbor by accident and hadn't been an enemy in the past. The killer will live in that city until there can be a trial before the community or until the death of one of the high priests of the time. 
Then the killer may return home, back to the city from which the flight began. These cities were the ones designated for all the Israelites and for immigrants residing among them. Anyone who struck down a person by mistake could flee there and escape death at the hands of some of the members of the victim's family seeking revenge until there could be a trial before the community. It's oddly specific, right? Apparently, these are the sort of things you need to be thinking about when you're starting an entirely new nation. And luckily, the laws of Moses had already made provisions for involuntary manslaughter. It's just the people couldn't put it into practice until they had cities, until they were in the promised land. Moses calls for the creation of something altogether new, something that hadn't been experienced before, something worth talking about. Moses calls these people to create cities of refuge, six designated safe havens for people caught up in the death of another person, right, while waiting trial or waiting out their time so as to avoid the vengeful wrath of the victim's family. And as odd and as specific as it may seem, this isn't the only place in which these cities are talked about. Numbers 35, which we did a few months ago, is painfully detailed about the the various acts that qualify as, as murder. And then we read, these six cities will be a refuge for Israelites, immigrants and temporary residents as a place to flee for anyone who kills a person by accident. If suddenly and without hostility someone hits another or throws any object at him without premeditation or accidentally drops a stone on him that could cause death and he dies, even though they weren't enemies and there was no evil intended, then the community must come to a verdict between the killer and those close relatives in accordance with these case laws. The community will protect the killer from the hands of the close relatives and return him to the city of refuge where he fled. Then again in Deuteronomy 19, here's the rule concerning a person who killed someone and is premeditated and is permitted to escape to one of these cities to live. If it's someone who killed his neighbor accidentally without having hated the person previously, or if someone goes into a forest with a neighbor to chop some wood, and while swinging an axe to cut down the tree, the axe flies off its handle and hits the neighbor who subsequently dies, these kind of killers may escape to one of these cities and live. The examples are almost comedic, right? Oddly specific, an axe head flying off a handle, a, a boulder accidentally being dropped on someone. And yet the the thing is, this stuff happened, or must have happened for them to bring it up this many times. When you're settling into a whole new land, building cities, chopping down trees, still a little jacked up from all that war, things happen. Accidents happen. And the uncontrolled rage, grief, likely plots of revenge, 
they could, they could threaten to destabilize the entire community. In a society that was extremely black and white, particularly, particularly in regards to their use of capital punishment, these cities provided just a little bit of gray. Right? Under the law of Moses, capital punishment was a lawful response to blasphemy, idolatry, Sabbath breaking, murder, kidnap, lying in court, sexual misconduct, just to name a few. These cities of refuge, they provided a communal deep breath, right, before yet another guilty verdict was carried out by the executioner. They were provisions of grace amidst a a punitive system. They were provisions of grace amidst a culture of revenge. They're provisions of grace to keep a tribal society from from constantly being at war with themselves. And friends, these cities of refuge, they were provisions of grace for those who were caught in their worst possible day. Those who just experienced their absolute largest mistake and had nowhere to turn. As odd as the readings may have seemed this morning, cities of refuge, they were provisions of grace stitched into the very fabric of the promised land so that everyone had somewhere to go, someone to turn to when the worst thing imaginable happened. It was all about grace. And while we're likely to never find ourselves on the run or fleeing the revenge of a family member, each and every one of us will will find ourselves in a position where we, we need people to turn to, places to run to. Each and every one of us are gonna find ourselves in a position in which we need grace. The Israelites knew, they knew that the health of their community relied on creating a culture of grace long before they would need it. And so I ask, do you have provisions of grace established in your life, in your family, within yourselves? Do you run on a tank of grace or are you fueled by by revenge? resentment. If the worst thing happened, would you have somewhere to go? Someone to turn to? I'm sure you've all heard of the term resilience. This morning, I'm going to use it in mostly a social and psychological sense. It's, it's a person's ability to bounce back, to, to recover from, from hardship, trauma, pain, to recover from their absolute worst day. A few years ago, I read a great little book entitled Building Resilience in Children and Teens, right? Giving Kids Roots and Wings. Through their research, the authors Kenneth Ginsberg and Miles Mealy argued, this is good, that the greatest gauge of a child's resilience, their ability to bounce back from their worst possible day is the number of people in their life that they believe would still love them, even if they did the worst thing they could imagine doing. 
They literally ask a child to imagine the worst thing they could possibly do. And once they had that thing in their mind, they would ask the child to name the people in their life that they believe would still love them even if they did that worst possible thing. The higher the number, the greater the resilience, the greater their ability to survive and bounce back from their worst possible day. It's as if preemptively knowing that they had a place to go and a people to be with offered them the safety and security to heal, to bounce back, to survive. And so let's try it together. Think of the worst thing. And do it quickly, because it's not a fun part. But think of the worst possible thing you could do in your workplace, in your marriage, with your kids, to a friend. Think of it, and then count how many people would stick around. Count how many people you are certain would still love you, even with that thing being on your track record. Who would you turn to? Where would you go? Who would still love you despite doing the worst thing imaginable? The question's simple. What sort of provisions of grace have we already established in our, our families, our social circles, our lives? The designation of, of cities of refuge may sound oddly specific, but often with things as big as grace, we have to get specific. Right, or else they never come to life. They never come down to earth. Right, everyone is welcome in the city of refuge. Like everyone? Or just everyone who has a clean sheet? Everyone who knows how to play the part? Everyone who has something to offer the community without bringing too much drama or neediness? What does grace look like? How do we begin building it into the fabric of our lives? How do we create a culture of grace that's strong enough and deeply rooted enough to push back on a prevailing culture of, of revenge? As oddly specific examples, I'll tell you a couple of provisions of grace that, that I've worked into my parenting. When a, when a string of poor decisions have been made or particularly challenging behavior has surfaced with one of our kids, yet I can tell that they know that they've dropped the ball, right? And you can tell. I can tell that they are already feeling the weight of what they just did. I'll often offer them just a complete fresh start. I'll ask them if they get what went wrong, and then, if they can name it, I'll offer them a complete redo. They get like a men in black, completely erase my memory, redo, if they'd like to try again. And then, I have them spin around three times, counting out each rotation. This is real, I did this yesterday. <laughs> I won't tell you which kid, but it wasn't Luke. I have them count out each rotation, and when they make the final turn, I greet them as if nothing had happened, right? Well, hey there, Caroline, how are you doing? 
what's up, Anna? You want to hang out? It's an age-appropriate provision of grace, a little system to help a child claim love when the lesson's already been learned. The second thing I do is even sillier, but it's real, and I've been doing it ever since Caroline started speaking. I sing. I sing a single line to my kids anytime I catch them feeling guilty, shameful, right? Sad because of something they've done. I look them in the eyes and I sing, there's nothing you could do to make me love you less. That's it. It's simple. It's silly. But I've sang it so many times to my kids that now they finish the song. I tuck them into bed after a particularly poor performance of listening and behaving. As I walk out, I sing, there's nothing you could do, and they finish, to make me love you less. It's a provision of grace, right? Being built ever before before they'd ever need it, right? It's making darn sure that they know I'll love them even if they do their worst possible thing. It's also fair to name, I'm not always a cool-headed parent singing songs of grace and making magic tricks that turn bad things into good things. I get annoyed, I respond poorly, I say dumb, emotionally insensitive things that cause my kids to cry, like every parent does from time to time. And that's why provisions of grace are so important because God only knows how often I need them too. As we already said, we have to build them before we need them. Right? Constructing a city of refuge after the accident makes no sense. You need it now. You build provisions of grace in your life. You extend provisions of grace to others because one day you'll need people to turn to, places to go. You'll need grace. And I guarantee you, you'll struggle to accept grace if you haven't made a point of offering it to other people throughout your life. Right? How often it went in need of grace, the real executioner is, is us. Right, ourselves. We're often our, our own worst critic. We struggle to accept grace, receive grace, believe that that kind of grace could even be real. And I'll tell you, if we haven't already made such provisions, provisions of grace in our life, offered it to other people, then the day we need it, it's likely going to be really hard to find and likely even harder to stomach to accept, to receive. You're likely never to need a defense lawyer for a case of involuntary manslaughter. So you're even less likely to need to flee to a city of refuge. But friends, you're certainly gonna screw things up from time to time. You're certainly gonna cause some pain, break something that matters, you're certainly going to do some harm over the course of your life. 
The Israelites needed cities of refuge to keep their culture of revenge, their culture of tit for tat, their culture of an eye for an eye from tearing them apart. And we need established practices of grace, right, for all the same reasons. We need to establish new rules for living and loving. We need to construct a whole new way of being that's centered on offering and receiving grace. And so I encourage you, I challenge you even to ask yourself some hard questions this week. Are there areas in your life or specific relationships in which you're holding on to something? In which you're still angry, still vengeful, still resentful, still being guided by an eye for eye mentality? I encourage you to take some time. Try to identify these areas. And then ask yourself, what would it look like to, to offer grace, to extend grace in that situation, in that relationship? What would it look like to stop chasing after fairness and start offering radical provisions of grace? And then after reflecting on past hurts, advanced player mode, how might you begin to stitch grace into the very fabric of your family, your relationships, your entire world? How might you begin constructing little cities of refuge in your world so that they're there when you or a loved one happens to need them? Might it be a silly song or a spinning magic trick? Might it be as simple as normalizing the phrase, I'm sorry? Might we practice apologizing, even with our kids, a specific and authentic apology? It creates space for grace, and it offers those in our lives the opportunity to practice giving grace. It's, it's a building block. Might it be a commitment to reassuring the people in our lives that we love them, especially when we can sense that they feel least deserving of it? Might it be turning to God, leaning into the spirit, asking the divine presence in our life to give us a deeper well of grace? Whatever it is, let it be grace. Grace amidst your worst day. Grace amidst your biggest mistake. Grace. It's part of God's vision for the promised land. It's part of God's provision for living the good life. Like I said, friends, next week we're going to say goodbye to the rocks. We're going to say goodbye to Joshua and bring some sort of conclusion to this promised land journey we've been on. Until then, spread some grace. Be kind to yourself. Amen.
wayfaring stranger traveling through this world alone there is no sickness toward or danger and that bright land to which I go Jordan, I'm on the 